Everybody got Acts 4, got your Bibles open, got your smartphones on, Facebook off, ready to go at it, okay? Michael Ramsden is a co-worker with Ravi Zacharias. Many of you maybe have listened to Ravi. He's one of my favorite people uh, to listen to on the radio. And he shared the following true story about a minister from Iran. And as the minister was driving with his wife, they stopped at a small Iranian village uh, to purchase some water. And before in entering uh, this, uh, this store that they were going to to get this water, the minister noticed a man holding uh, a machine gun and leaning up against the wall outside the store. The minister's wife looked at that man's face and the gun and then put a Bible in her husband's hand and she said to him, give that man this Bible. Her husband looked at the man, his menacing beard, his machine gun, and he said, I don't think so. But she persisted. She said, no, I'm serious. Give this man the Bible, please. And trying to avoid the issue, you know, husbands are good at this, uh, said, okay, I'll pray about it, a good spiritual way to evade the issue. I'll pray about it. So he went into the shop. He purchased the water. He climbed back in the car, started, started to drive away, and his wife said, you did not give him the Bible, did you? He said, no. He said, I prayed about it. I just didn't think it was the right thing to do. And she quietly said, you should have given him the Bible. And then she bowed her head and started praying. You know who's going to win this conflict, don't you? <laughs> At that point, he turned around and told his wife, fine, if you want me to die, I will. That's a good husband response. It's a true story. So when the, when the minister turned to the store, turned around, the man with the machine gun was still standing against the wall. And the minister got out of the car, approached the man. He placed the Bible in his hand. And when the man opened it up and he saw the Bible, he started weeping. He said, I don't live here. I had to walk for three days in order to get to this village. But three days ago, an angel appeared to me and told me to walk to this village and wait until somebody had given me the book of life. Thank you for giving me this book. <laughs> the minister became a courageous witness for Christ. And eventually, he and some of his other co-workers, not because of this instance, but others as they continued to proclaim Christ, were martyred for their faith. May God instill in each of us the belief that God can work through common people and do extraordinary things. Which simply have to take the step to be courageous. Let's listen to how this happened to Peter and John. See if we can't learn some things. Let's stand and take a look at this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. 
Remember before this, the man had been healed on the steps of the temple. The Sanhedrin were upset about it. And they recognized him as having been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Heavenly Father, it is easy for us to be removed from this story, to see it as a way that you moved 2,000 years ago in Peter and John and maybe give some lame application for today that kind of denudes the passage of your miracle-working power and especially of a miracle-working capacity today in our own lives. Keep us from doing that. May we welcome your spirit to move. May we not put limits on what you want to do in our lives. Do intervene as you see fit. And may we as your people be willing to do the scary thing, to take a step of faith, to be courageous. Because we want you to receive glory. Speak through this story to our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Why this religious establishment felt threatened by Peter and John is certainly interesting to consider when you think of the fact that the church was not an official organization yet. There was no great facility to show off all of their wares. The church was just beginning And yet, the religious establishment made sure that they had killed their leader by crucifying him on a cross. But what they were not counting on is that that man would rise from the dead. They had no plan for what would happen when Peter and John would heal somebody at the steps of the temple. And they were not prepared for thousands of people to convert from Judaism to Christ. But that was not all that they were unprepared for. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition. So Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. This is 70 men, a kind of supreme court of the Jews. They were presided over by another individual, so that made 71, the high priest. These were the yuckety mucks of Judaism. Highly educated, professionally trained. And they hear Peter and John 
now speaking without fear, with just crystal clarity and with authority. And they're thinking, who are these guys? They haven't been formally trained. They haven't gone through all the steps we have gone through to be where we're at. They're unschooled. We are the special forces of Judaism, and they're nothing but plebes. We are in the upper class, and these guys are coming to us from a van by the river. <laughs> if, you, if you smell a, a hint of looking down upon these two, if, if you think that was contempt or academic and professional snobbery, then you're getting the right message. That's what is taking place. Perhaps we could stop right here and consider a couple things. Number one, I've heard pastors talk to them personally, espousing the idea that the Holy Spirit especially moves when you're unprepared or uneducated. This is not recommending not having an education or being unprepared. In fact, I would contend that Peter and John had three years of spending time with Jesus Christ. They were prepared for this moment. They had also learned the Old Testament law. And what they were doing was applying what they have learned with fresh insights from the Old Testament instead of the lifeless teaching that the Sanhedrin was giving from this religious establishment. A lack of preparation is not a required precursor for the movement of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, whatever Peter and John lacked, and there was a lot that they lacked in, God still used their courage and boldness. Take note of this. Peter and John were not looking for a fight. They were not looking for a confrontation. They simply were called into the Sanhedrin to give an account for this healing at the steps of the temple. But the point is, is that God is not limited by our talent. Remember Moses? God, I can't speak. Don't worry about it. I've got it. God is not limited by our intellect. I'm glad about that. Okay? I brag, I scored double figures on my ACT. I just want to point that out. Okay. God is able to work through common people. We do our best to be prepared. And then God is able to convey through us, using us, to do supernatural things. That's a pretty amazing thing. Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory in Colossians 1.27. In other words, when we are in a situation, when we feel out of our league, Christ in us is our hope. The best that could be said of us was said by the Sanhedrin of these men. We recognize these two as having been with Jesus. Now, certainly, they could have said that because they recognized them as hanging around Jesus the previous three years. 
but they also recognized that they were teaching like Jesus as one with authority. It was said of Jesus, in fact, in Matthew 7.29, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes who were used to just quoting a bunch of other people trying to impress the audience where now you have this this freshness, this sincerity, the speaking of their own authority of what God is saying. They had not seen that. Peter and John were now filled with the very life of Christ in them, filled with the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of what some of the excuses that we use for not stepping out and being bold in our faith, not being courageous. I usually hear from people, you know what, I just don't know enough to do that. Speaking of just giving a a testimony maybe or sharing Christ with somebody. And here we read, Peter and John, they were not experts. They were uneducated men. But we probably should take a note right here that the church was started on the backs of uneducated men. Men who were courageous and bold, and God used that. And I'd be willing to bet that when we look at how God is moving around the world in places like China where the underground church is thriving, it is with people who are largely uneducated, but they are willing to take a risk, and God uses them. When the Holy Spirit is moving in a heart, people are willing to take a step to be courageous. You know, in the first century Palestine, we read of disciples who were uneducated and very bold. And in America, we largely see Christians who are educated but rarely bold. By the way, these early believers didn't become bold in a vacuum. We know they spent days in the upper room praying, anticipating asking God to move in their life. It doesn't take rocket science to figure this out. More prayer, more boldness. More prayer, Holy Spirit using us. Take note that this Jewish court was not contesting the facts. There was a resurrection. There was a healed man. Lame arguments are not going to stand up in the face of eyewitness testimony. And verse 14 says, They could not contest the healing of the lame man. But Luke happens to insert a very substantive detail in this. I love this. He said, he didn't say the the healed man was sitting in a chair. He didn't say the the healed man is squatting on the floor. He didn't say the, the healed man is leaning up against the wall. No, he said the healed man was now standing right beside Peter and John. This guy who hadn't walked in 40 years is now standing on his own two feet, and they previously watched him running around the temple. Amazing. This powerful witness of of Peter and John coupled with this healed man standing in front of them meant they could not refute the evidence But that didn't stop them from trying to shut down Peter and John. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. 
Now, the council could have admitted their error. They could have repented. They could have acknowledged Christ as the Son of God. That would have been the preferred response. And they certainly had opportunity to do that. And that was where the evidence was certainly pointing. But like Romans 1.18 says, these men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And then they ask these three men to step out so that the Sanhedrin can pull together their foolishness and rebellion and come up with what they thought was a brilliant plan. Let's tell them they can't preach anymore about Jesus. Notice verse 17 doesn't say we just want them to quit healing or we just want them to quit preaching. They don't want them doing this in the name of Jesus. In fact, they actually just say this name. Apparently, there was so much contempt for Christ, they couldn't even say his name. And underneath this gag order was a real fear because people of Jerusalem could see the evidence. They could make their own conclusion about Christ. They could not deny the miracle. The Jewish council knew where this evidence was pointing. But their hard hearts would not allow them to reach the conclusion that Christ was indeed the Son of God and responsible for this healing. They didn't want to see any more converts either. Remember that. So they were playing politics instead of leading. They played to the crowd instead of submitting to truth. And I think it reminds us that when people reject Christ, that ultimately it's not because they don't have enough evidence. It's because it's a matter of the will. People do not want to sit under an almighty God. They did not want to submit to Christ. How is it that a religious institution, the very vehicle that was supposed to facilitate the truth, now is the very vehicle in which inhibits hearing the word of God? Is it not true that it could be true for churches or even other religious organizations that they become intoxicated on maybe money, growth, power, approval? I don't imagine that these religious leaders began in this ministry thinking, you know what, I think what we want to do is abuse our power. I think they probably started out, you know, maybe sincere, wanting to somehow use their influence in a positive way. But kind of like the frog in the, in the warm water that's heated up, their hearts just became harder and harder until they turned a deaf ear to God. And they just are trying to prop up their religious prestige, hold on to their religious power. That's where they're at. You know, if you think about it, this situation they're in, in any situation that we get in conflict, whether it be in a religious organization or a family or work, can all be traced back to our hearts. Selfish motives, self-protection that's going on. And that's why James said in James 4.1, it all goes back to what's going on in the hearts. It boils down to the motives, Right? 
I mean, when's the last time you saw two humble people really going at one another? Exactly. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So the council calls these three men back in and tells them that they want them to stop talking about Jesus. You know, the world can endure religion. The world can endure good works and even preaching. But people find the gospel of Jesus Christ offensive. Why? Because sin is a real problem they do not want to admit. And the cure is in Jesus. And that's an exclusive claim. And on both accounts, people trip all over it. They refuse to acknowledge, acknowledge their own sin and God's redemptive plan in Jesus alone. So Peter and John, notice here, they're not caustic. They're not, you know, wagging a finger. They're not even angry. We don't see this in the story, but they're direct. And what's cool about it is we, we have nothing in here that tells us that, you know, they told the council, hey, could you guys just wait a couple minutes because we need to have a little conflap here between the three of us, all right? Let us talk. No. I think probably what happened, they looked at each other, they didn't need to say a word, and they knew what they had to do. They had to do the right thing. So they put it right back in the laps of the council. Um, who do you as religious leaders think ought to happen, that we listen to men or we listen to God? I mean, how are you going to answer that? And by the way, how can this be against the law, us healing a guy in the name of Jesus? It was said of John Knox, Scottish reformer, he feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. Wow. You know, the irony here is that despite Peter and John saying they weren't going to do what they had asked them to do, that Peter would later write in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's an injunction we all ought to take to heart, but it's not absolute because there are times in which authorities may call us to do something immoral or may call us to do something that is completely against, opposed to the direct revealed will of God. Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 that woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And throughout the Old Testament, we see, we see godly men and women, and prophets such as Nathan, uh, Elijah, Jeremiah, they were confronting government officials. We read of three men in the book of Daniel who were told by government officials to bow before an idol. And they refused to and were thrown in a fiery furnace and God rescued them. What Peter and John are saying is that they would rather face the condemnation of earthly authorities than to face the disapproval of a heavenly one. I can remember struggling with this issue in high school. Couldn't quite make up my mind who was going 
to reign supreme in my life. I was a believer. I was a Christian. I wanted to follow Christ. But I also wanted to be well-liked. I can remember the struggle. I led this Bible club in high school, and I was embarrassed that my name was put out on the announcements as the leader of the Bible club because it wasn't as cool or as sexy as maybe being captain of a sports team. And every time my name was said, I'm just like, ugh. I hadn't yet settled the issue. And I think there are many of us who have yet to settle in our hearts what is most important. You call yourself a Christian, but you've yet to commit to being a true disciple of Christ because you've put popularity, friends, or family above or even equal to your relationship with Christ. You know, Christ cuts through all of that when he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let there be no doubt our allegiance is to Christ and him alone. Now, that doesn't mean we are jerks and we are rude to people. What it means, though, when there is a conflict, and sometimes your commitment to Christ comes against a family system. And so you have to just be willing to take the heat. Sometimes it comes against friends or people at work. And again, let it not be because we're rude. Let it not be because we're wagging our finger in people's face. But let it be because of the the loving proclamation of the gospel. Let it not be because people can't stand us for some political rant. Let that, not be, let that not get in the way of the gospel. That I'm willing to go to the mat for. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The apostles violated no law These religious leaders had no legal grounds for punishing them. And when they saw that their threats were not going to work, they finally let them go. Again, these leaders are more concerned about the opinions of the people, the the popularity, the politics, than they are about truth. They don't want to lose favor with the people by punishing Peter and John because they were the at the center of this celebration now that people are having because of this miracle. I mean, the evidence that this man was healed was irrefutable. He was lame for 40 years. He obviously was not faking it. and he, He begged for decades at the temple steps. And on this day, he's standing as evidence to the miraculous power of Jesus. Chrysostom, the early church father who lived about 400 years after this event, compared the Sanhedrin to Peter and John. He said this, The Sanhedrists at a loss, the apostles joyful. They, afraid to say what they think, these speaking out openly. 
They, dreading to have the report spread, these unable not to say what they saw and heard. They, not doing what they wanted, these declaring what they wanted. And he ends by asking, who then were in bonds and in danger? (laughs) When we look at cases in the Bible, when God did something big, it was usually with ordinary people willing to take a step, do something scary, be courageous. Elijah, standing at Mount Carmel, confronting a plethora of idol worshipers, calling down God to bring fire upon that altar. That's a big moment. That was risky. Peter and John went to the temple. They were not going for a casual walk. They were going as emissaries of Jesus. Faith, listen, faith is often associated with taking a step into scary territory, a risk, doing something courageous. We all want to experience the Holy Spirit. I would assume that today. Maybe we naively think that when we do, there's going to be flying doves. There's going to be fire. The, The ground is going to shake. There will be tongues for the Holy Spirit to be moving. I'm not saying those things cannot happen. But it's hard to find the Holy Spirit moving in the Scripture without somebody taking a step, being courageous. It's hard to find the Holy Spirit moving in Scripture with a guy who's sitting on the couch. One of the reasons that the Holy Spirit was given to us was so we could operate in ministry, that we could spread the gospel, right? So if you've never experienced the Holy Spirit you know, moving in you, having a, having a sense that God was using you. Ask yourself, am I presently making disciples? Am I being deliberate in sharing the gospel? Am I obeying the nudge of the Holy Spirit when he tells me to do something? It could be as small as just this morning before the first service, somebody came up to me and just said, hey, God has just been telling me, can I... Can I just pray for you right now? I'm like, sure, I'll take that. It was a sweet, sweet thing. But just listening to the Spirit of God. See, average people can do this. Average people can love. Average people can share the gospel. And average people plus Christ in them equals supernatural activity. Let us not evade the environments where Christ can work through us to others. I'm not looking for a room that shakes or fire from heaven, although that would be cool, I've got to admit. I'd, I'd like to see that. But I think for most of us, God wants us to take a risk, to take a step, to be courageous, to do something scary and then watch them work. Let's pray.